Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to episode four of series 22 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. On the show today, I'm talking to Peter Capelli, the George W. Taylor Professor of Management and the Professor of Education and Director for the Centre for HR at the Wharton School. But there is one other point about the difference between the pandemic working from home and going forward. And this is quite crucial for employees, and that is it won't be the same thing, right? So right now, when you're still working from home because of the pandemic restrictions, you have to, so does everybody else. As soon as we get past that point, and we're asking you to raise your hand and say, okay, do you want to work remotely or not? Now there's a big signaling and self-identification thing, right? And we have studied this a lot. So there's a bunch of studies that looked at what happens to people who work remotely when their peers are back in the office. And the results are pretty uniform, that if you're staying home, your career suffers in lots of ways. Throughout our conversation, Peter shares his extensive knowledge and research on the world of work, HR and leadership. And we cover a number of different topics that Peter has unique insights on. These include the impact of hybrid working on employees and employers, and the effect this could have on people and their careers now that we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, We look at how employers are approaching bringing employees back to the office and what that means for employee productivity and engagement. We look at the rise in employee activism and how organisations should respond to this. Uh, And why, in Peter's view, companies just aren't getting better at workforce planning. And then finally, Peter shares his thoughts on how HR can add business value as we start to come out of the pandemic. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Peter Capelli, the George W. Taylor Professor of Management at the Wharton School and Director of Wharton's Centre for Human Resources to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Peter. It's fantastic to have you on as a guest. Can, can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to, to you and your work? Uh, well, thank you, David. A pleasure to be here. So I guess I'm kind of all over the place in terms of my interests and things. So I, I began my career at uh, at Oxford at Nuffield College uh, studying inflation, um, which seemed like a dead issue for a while, but now it's topical again. So there you go. And I went to, back to the U.S. where just at the point where unions were uh, beginning to collapse, and I studied that stuff for a while. And, um, you know, these topics seem to die and I have to move on and other things, you know. So I was interested in public policy and spent a fair amount of time around Washington things. And many of the questions about workforce policy uh, have to do with employer decisions, like who do they hire? What are they looking for? Do they train people or not? What do they actually allow people to do? And that uh, sort of informed my teaching, which I had to do at the Wharton School, is to think about how people are actually managed, um, thinking about why it matters in a kind of bigger sense, right? So in the last few years, I've been writing articles that uh, describe a lot of contemporary practices, a lot of them which are new and evolving. In the academic world, we don't seem very care, very interested, to be honest, <laughs> in what's happening in the world around us. And there's just a lot of quirky things that have been happening on topics that are fundamental, like hiring and like, uh, who do you actually employ and how do we pay people and 
Uh, so just describing how things actually work and sometimes the quirkiness of those. It's, it's, it's interesting. And actually, I, I wrote down the study of the unions and definitely going to ask you a follow-up question later around the kind of the rise we're seeing, particularly in the US, around employee activism and what that means for, for companies and HR. Um, but before we talk about some of your recent research, you know, it'd be great to hear a little bit, you know, given us a little bit of, uh, about your career history and how you became interested in HR and the world of work. You know, what, what are the things that really sort of drove your interest levels down that? So, you know, management, HR and the world of work. Well, as I was saying, I, I came at this through public policy questions. So in, in the 90s, um, we were kind of commissioned or I was commissioned to to do a study about, uh, at that time, we were talking about high performance work systems and, you know, what was going on with those. And um, we wrote a book, my colleagues and I, about the restructuring of the U.S. economy. And the punchline there was that, frankly, a lot of the costs of restructuring were pushed onto employees in the U.S., broken employment contracts in particular, and the end of lifetime employment and those sorts of things. So we're writing about those. And after that, I wrote uh, a book about the decline and end of lifetime employment, which is still the most fundamental issue around human resources, because we have all these legacy systems from the GE days, right? Um, and GE was doing just what every other big company did. They were just the last ones to do it, uh, about managing people internally. But then in practice, we don't manage them internally. So we still have a lot of practices like succession planning. We go through the exercise. We don't do it, don't do anything with it, but we're still going through the exercises, right? So so how do you manage people in the context of uh, the end of lifetime employment? So uh, that first book on that was called uh, The New Deal at Work. And then after that, I wrote a book called Talent on Demand, which was basically asking the question, okay, if there's a lot of uncertainty in what we're gonna need, in terms of talent, uh, if there's certainty, by the way, it's pretty simple how to manage people. And that's the old GE kind of model. Let's predict, let's plan, et cetera. If planning isn't working very well and you don't know where you're going to go, what should you do? And so I wrote a book about that that basically just borrowed from supply chain management. And I think everybody kind of recognized that that was a big problem, but nobody did it. You know, and partly that's because of bad timing. It came out right at the beginning of the Great Recession, uh, and you know nobody was interested in planning at, at that point, right? So I wrote a bunch of other books that were about sort of topical issues like managing older workers and why people weren't able to get jobs in the Great Recession, even though employers were constantly complaining that there was nobody to hire, which was quirky. And you know the explanation there is that employers had moved to this model of not uh, training people because you could just hire them on the outside. And then at some point it gets harder and harder to find people who fit exactly what you want if you're not gonna train them. Right? And so then the employers are saying, well, why can't I hire somebody with five years of experience in C++ mobile app programming in um, a context of these other clients that I deal with? And you know, guess what, you can't. So I wrote some things about that. And, uh, and then I started writing articles for the Harvard Business Review and a lot of them in the Wall Street Journal about things like what's happened to performance management or what's happened to hiring and how that's working. We had one this last month or so about wellness programs with a colleague, and it turns out that the evidence is pretty clear they don't actually improve anybody's health. And so why are we doing them? You know, it's an interesting question. So I've been writing uh, the last year or so working on a book um, 
which is a big kind of sweeping book for Oxford University Press um, about can we explain why we manage people so differently than how the textbooks describe it? How do we hire? Why do we hire so differently? Uh, and things like with respect to hiring, why so few employers seem to care whether the hiring practices they're using work, right? So they track how much it costs, how long it takes, but not whether it gets you better people or not. It just seems bizarre. And there's so many of these bizarre practices. Um, why is that? And so I wrote an article that was in HBR a year ago about the effort to kind of try to optimize everything, you know, even when engaging employees and allowing them to make decisions has all kinds of benefits. We want to take that away and impose various kinds of optimization solutions on those practices, which otherwise seem to work fine, right? And part of the problem with this optimization approach to human issues is that it ends up creating problems elsewhere, right? You know, so you impose an optimal schedule on employees and uh, the problem with that, it's actually more rigid than if employees can use kind of a flexi time approach, which is common where you, they negotiate among each other and work out the schedules and they can accommodate last minute things. And, and a lot of these optimization things seem to undercut the role of supervisors too, because there's nothing for them to do if schedules are determined by software, promotions are determined by algorithms. You know, there's very little for the supervisors to do. There's nobody to complain to or redress your problems. If you're an employee, something doesn't seem fair. Who do you talk to? Well, if they give you the phone number for the program who wrote the wrote the software, it's not very compelling, right? And this uh, last iteration of this, which I think is also going to be in HBR this fall, is about the role of financial accounting, which is seems to be the main quirkiness in what is driving these strange employment practices. And a lot of what you folks would call pennywise and pound foolish approaches, same term we use here, which is a lot of things which seem cheaper when you're looking at the upfront costs, but if you're looking at the longer term costs, they're obviously more expensive or just creating problems someplace else, right? So, um, so that's kind of takes me where I am right now. You know, why do we think, because clearly these practices aren't really working, certainly if you start to look at the long time, you know, why do companies, why do you, you know, what are some of the research you're doing showing as to why companies do it? Are they doing it because they're not tracking it long term, they're only tracking it short term, for example? Are yeah. they doing it because everyone else is doing it? Um, you know, what, what are some of the things that you're seeing as to, as to why this is happening? Well, I think some of it is uh, that the nature of business leaders, their attributes are a little different now than they were a generation ago. Um, by some measures, a third of our CEOs in the U.S. anyway are engineers by training, which is a hugely disproportionate number. Um, and if you think about the career track that produces more of them than any others, it's finance, which is another kind of rational, optimizing view of the world sort of thing. And we've gotten rid of management development programs. So it used to be people who started in business were typically put through a year or two of management training where I learned basically why all that optimization stuff has limits. Uh, and they learned about people and people management. And those programs are gone, right? So some of it is you have people at the top who don't really know much about the management of people. And Silicon Valley is part of this, right? Because 
the founders of those companies who are still largely around had no management experience typically. Uh, and those who did, Jeff Bezos is one who had worked before, but he was an investment banker, so he had no management experience, right? Um, and so you have people running these companies who don't know much about management. And, you know, there's a famous quote in the U.S. that's attributed to Mark Twain, but also about a dozen other people. It says, uh, it's not what people don't know that's the problem. It's what they're sure of that just ain't so, you know. Uh, and they have views about uh, managing people which fit this kind of rational, incentive-based optimization kind of view. Business schools teach this pretty heavily. It's out of the economics paradigm, you know. And, um, and so then where are they going to get any other information? And part of this, I think, is that the problem is that HR is so beaten down in many places that the HR people just do whatever the CEO wants them to do. And they don't have, as we would describe it, a point of view on any of these issues, right? So if you talk about training and they're talking about cutting the training budgets because, you know, they're expensive and, you know, we're just going to cut them. And the point of view would be, well, what is this going to cost us in, in knock-on effects, right? Well, we know something about that, but I think, you know, initially the HR people were shut up because they couldn't speak the language of finance. They couldn't describe this in terms of what's the effect of this on, you know, whatever outcome you want. And I think some of this is we were just cowed because we thought everybody else was doing fancy stuff and they're not, right? Look at our marketing colleagues who are made, you know, mainly guessing about most of their impacts, right? And directionally would be important just to be able to say, well, here's the direction in which this goes and here's our best guess as to what the costs are. But if you won't guess and you won't be directional because we've made perfect the enemy of good, right? Then you're saying nothing. And then the CEO thinks, she thinks, well, the rational thing to do here is to not train people because it's cheaper and we can just hire other people's people. And, you know, let's just drive down the, uh, the upfront costs. And, you know, nobody is raising their hand to say, well, you know, we could do that, but here are the consequences in the next period, or, or here's where it's costing us more someplace else. And as a result, we just trot along this merry line, right? So, um, one of the things in this book I'm uh, writing is that you could look back over my career, which has been a while now, and you can see every few years there's a new notion about why it pays off to manage your employees carefully or invest them, invest them, right? And they present evidence showing why it works, and then people talk about it in the press, and then it dies. Uh, and then the next one will come along, and basically all saying the same thing about trusting your employees, empowering them, and gets a lot of attention and it does. And so I was trying to explain a little bit about why it keeps dying, right? Yeah. Um, despite evidence each time, nobody contradicts the evidence. It's not that other stories come along showing, ah, this is not true. And there's actually several studies in the world of finance showing that you could beat the market simply by betting on companies that do more investing in their employees. And these are careful studies. These are not the simple correlational studies that you know, we see in consulting firms cranking out all the time. So there's a lot of evidence showing this works and we ignore the evidence. So, you know, why is that? It's kind of a puzzle once you step back from it a bit. Right? It is. It is. And I wonder if, um, and I know you've, you've done some research about the impact of, of the pandemic, you know, will the, could the pandemic act as a, 
as something that might change that and we start to invest more in the people in the organization yeah. we start to see some of the results so right. you've done you've done some re- research about the the the, the impact of the, the pandemic and particularly on the on the changes on the way people think about work you know w- what has your research shown on how people's perception you know as well as their priorities and their values have, have changed in the last two years well, you know, I think on that topic, um, it, it, particularly in the U.S. and to some extent in all the common law countries, um, you know, the employers have most of the say over what's going on. So unless they can see right in their face the problems, um, they tend not to pay attention to them. Uh, and governments are not going to intervene and, and do much about them. So, so the question about, you know, the pandemic and particularly working from home in an office context, which many employees say they like, is to say, well, how does this help the employer? Uh, And so far, what we have seen is there's an enormous amount of interest in this in the press. And the interest, not surprisingly, is always on the extreme end. And the extreme end is people who um, want to work permanently remote and move to Portugal and work from a small village there. And isn't this cute and everybody wants to do this, right? Well, and it turns out that actually most people don't want to do that. Um, Even though that one, at least from the employer's perspective, the CFOs like that idea because they're going to take your office away, right? And save on real estate costs and they can see immediately why that might save them some upfront money, but actually not very many people want to do that, right? The problem is on the employer side, um, they seem disproportionately to want to go bring people back to the office. And at least in the U.S., maybe you're hearing this elsewhere now too, the last couple of weeks we've heard more and more stories like that and more and more poll results saying that employers want to bring everybody back, right? So the question is, if you're not going to do that, if you want to keep people working remotely or some sort of in-between hybrid model, how does that help the employers? Because if it doesn't help them, uh, then it's not going to happen, frankly. They're not going to do anything just because employees want it, right? Unless there's a payoff. You know, employees want lots of things we just never get. We want higher pay. We don't get that, you know, all kinds of things. So why would we expect to get this? And, uh, you know, the problem is the employers at the top, the leaders, are not disposed to think about how this might work for them. So they're not inclined to do it, right? And I think we're starting to see now people heading back, trying to bring more people back to the office on a permanent basis. So, you know, has it changed the way employees think about work? Um, There's very little evidence that people are quitting their jobs and moving to Tibet and becoming Buddhists, you know? I mean, it's just, that's not what's going on. They're quitting this job and moving to another job. And the reason they're all doing that now is frankly because they can, right? Um, you know, you see these surveys saying, you know, a third of workers say they'll quit unless they get blah, blah, blah. They say that all the time. There's nothing new about those surveys. They've always said that. The problem is <clears throat> they don't quit. And the correlation between saying you're going to quit, intentions of quit, to quit, what the psychologists call this, and actual quitting is just a couple of percent. So almost nobody who says they quit actually quit. And the main reason, as we know, is quitting is hard. It's easy to say, I want to quit. It's difficult to do it. And the main reason why it's difficult to do it is you have to have another job. And unless somebody's offering you one, you don't quit. So we've known this forever, right? As soon as the unemployment rate drops, the quit rate goes up because 
There are more jobs when the unemployment rate is low and more people can quit, so they do, right? I think the one thing which is different is that for people who have been working remotely, um, social ties have frayed. And one of the main factors that retains people in organizations, in all kinds of organizations, are social ties. And particularly ties with supervisors and my immediate peers. And if it's been two years since I've seen those people, I don't feel particularly close to them or particularly tied to them. And especially if somebody offers me a job where I can just stay remote and all I have to do is change my IP address, now it's pretty easy for me to move, right? So that's the main thing which has happened is it's a lot easier to move. There are more jobs. The labor market at least is tight, at least in some places, not everywhere. And actually quit rate is not up everywhere. It's only certain industries. But it's also easier to let go because there's not very much holding me anymore. So I'd say that's the one thing which is different. Our employers responding to that, um, I'd say they were at the beginning, um, but I think a little bit they did that at the beginning because it sounded like everybody else was doing it. They're all waiting to see what everybody else is doing. But you can already see the industry patterns forming, right? Banking has said in New York, everybody back in. And in California, Silicon Valley, they were saying, fine, go work from home. But now they're walking that back in Silicon Valley. They're walking it back by charging you basically a penalty on your compensation if you want to work remotely. They were saying, well, we're going to cut your pay. And they don't say it that way, right? They say, well, we're going to pay you based on the labor market where you're living, uh, knowing that nowhere else is the labor market higher than where they are, or the cost of living where you're going to move, and which no one's ever thought about doing that before. You know, they never looked at the zip code where your house is in Silicon Valley and pricing your compensation based on that. Their cost of living difference is already pretty big. So I always tell my friends who were there, just tell them you want to move to Hong Kong where the cost of living is 30% higher than Silicon Valley and see if they give you a pay raise. You know, they, they don't mean it. That's not why they're doing it, right? So, so I think even in Silicon Valley, they're walking this back. Uh, and the other thing which is not so well known is that the tech firms who were big on pushing remote work are also buying commercial real estate like crazy during the pandemic. They're the single biggest purchasers of long-term office space. So what's going on there? It doesn't sound like they're moving toward a permanently remote world, you know. Yes, it's interesting. You have to you have to look between that but beyond the headlines sometimes, don't you? And as you said, you know, supply and demand, you know, if if uh, the unemployment rate goes down and there's more jobs around, it's just that's always been the case. Pretty know, simple. Yeah. Um, and I sh- yeah, I shouldn't just I shouldn't complain about I- employers here. It's an incredibly difficult situation they're in trying to know what to do. And many of them were trying to be upfront early on and communicate well with their employees as to what was going on. The problem is I think they feel much like governments around the world with the pandemic that they were getting beaten up for being wrong, even though they were telling people, you know, in the U.S., we thought Labor Day, which is the big September holiday, usually the mark of the end of summer, everybody would be back in the office. That was the assumption in 2020. And the employers were saying that. And then in 2021, they started to say that again. Okay, we're just off by a year. (laughs) We had the right day. Uh, And then they started to say, you know, we're just not going to predict anymore because things are so uncertain. Uh, And that, I think, also meant they weren't communicating at all with their employees. 
you know, and that's a really bad thing though, right? To, at the very least, they want to know, here's what we don't know. And here are the issues that have to resolve before we can make decisions. Because if you don't do that, people make up explanations as to what they think is going on, which is what they have been doing. And generally those are worse than the reality, right? So that's been a problem. When we come back in just a moment, Peter talks about the impact that remote working has had on employee productivity and working patterns and how hybrid working might evolve as we come out of the pandemic. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Orgview. In a time when disruption and uncertainty are constantly present, Orgview puts businesses on the front foot. As the leading organisational planning and design software platform, Orgview captures the power of data and modelling to build more adaptable, better performing organisations. Orgview gives you control of your organisation and, with data evidence, helps you make faster, more confident decisions to get the right people doing the right work at the right cost. This is real-time organisational planning and design for times of change. Orgview is used by the world's largest and best-known enterprises to fearlessly build the organisations they want tomorrow, today. To discover more, visit orgview.com. That's O-R-G-V-U-E dot com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with Peter Capelli. Now, back to the conversation. And of course, what's interesting, back to what you said earlier around sometimes actually when you do the research, you look at the data, you start to see that actually if you treat employees better, um, then actually it has a positive impact on results, uh, on business results. Similarly, you know, a lot of companies, Microsoft's a great example because they've been publishing a lot of the information that they've been doing during the during the pandemic they've been studying office workers working remote you know yep. the workers themselves are saying they feel more productive yep. um other other measures of productivity that they might look at are also showing that that's positive now Microsoft aren't you know they're, they're certainly openly communicating that they're going to move to a hybrid hybrid work pattern but other companies are seeing that data as well but yet they're still potentially trying to pull everyone back into the office as well even though the data is telling them that might not be the best thing to do yeah, I think that's right. And even worse, I think it, we've seen an explosion of interest in Tattleware, the software that monitors you at your desk, right? So, you know, I think that what employees liked the most about working remotely was not, you know, just being able to wear your pajamas through the first half of the day. I mean, it has some appeal, frankly, but um, it was that they were managed differently, right? the bosses treated them differently. They trusted them more because they had no choice. I mean, some of this was uh, because we were all in this together too. Everybody had to work from home. Your boss was working from home. You could see what her happens when her dog comes in and you know, it's humanizing and all that stuff. Um, and employers had to trust their employees. Say, look, here's what needs to be done. In some ways, performance management was better because they were saying, you know, here's what you have to do this week. Here's the goal. This, I don't care when you do it, right? And so what was good about that is, you know, I could start working early in the morning and then stop and go get coffee or get dressed later, take the dog for a walk, come back in, 
have lunch, run an errand, come back. My kid's home from school. I set them down at work. I come back to work. You know, one of the things that Microsoft research and others show is the workday has gotten a lot longer, but employees are still okay with that because they're taking breaks along the way. So if you impose tattleware software on this, it defeats the entire purpose of being at home, right? And as you say, you know, every employer seemed to think this worked okay for them. And yet they want to impose tattleware software to make people work differently because now they don't trust them, right? Because they never really trusted them. Even though the evidence suggested it worked fine, they don't believe it. It's, it's ideology, right? But there is one other point about the, the difference between the pandemic working from home and going forward. And this is quite crucial for employees. And that is, it won't be the same thing, right? So right now, when you're still working from home because of the pandemic restrictions, you have to, so does everybody else. As soon as we get past that point, and we're asking you to raise your hand and say, okay, do you want to work remotely or not? Now there's a big signaling and self-identification thing, right? And we have studied this a lot. So there's a bunch of studies that looked at what happens to people who work remotely when their peers are back in the office. And the results are pretty uniform that if you're staying home, your career suffers in lots of ways. You know, your promotions slow down, your career advancement stalls, you are less engaged, you're less committed to the organization in part because social relations carry a lot of engagement and commitment. You know, it's not that I care about the company logo so much, but I care about the people I work with and I care about the leaders maybe, and I think what they're doing is good. So it's going to be a really different event if you're working remotely after the pandemic because your career will take a hit. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, um, but it's something to go in with your eyes open if you're an employee volunteering. If, and just a little career advice, you know, if you're beginning your career and you want to work remotely, you're nuts. I mean, you're just, it's just a bad, bad idea at the beginning of your career to not be in an office because you're going to learn so much. And if you don't go, you will be so far behind your colleagues who do go in a matter of two or three years that your career will suffer from then on out. I mean, it's not fair. And we might want to say, boy, employers should fix this. They're not going to. It's so hard to fix, you know. It would require changing everything about the way we supervise people, being much more formal about management, all the things we've been cutting over the last few years. Are we going to turn all that around just to help the remote workers? You know, as we say in Philadelphia, it's a great expression here. We say, God bless, which just means good luck with that, right? Because it's not going to work out well for you, right? So, so when Laszlo bought, you know, he's been quoted recently, and I, I don't think he necessarily think it's a good thing, like 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 you and me. But when he says hybrid work probably won't survive, he's he's likely to be proved right. You know, in the, in the, as as we move right, which is certainly not a statement that that it, it it would be better if everybody goes back to the office. I mean, it would be better if we could find ways to accommodate more human uh, human needs, and we know that there are all kinds of benefits that will come from that. But if you're betting. You know, there's another great American expression from uh, a sports writer. Um, his name will come to me in a second. Anyway, his expression was, he said, the race is not always to the swift nor the battle to the strong, 
but that's the way to bet, you know, and the employers have all the muscle in this. And what they seem to want is people go back to work. That doesn't mean they're right, but it, they tend to get their way, right? Yeah, and I guess some of the companies that are more aggressive about this to start off with might lose out in the short term. Some of their key employees might leave and go somewhere else because mm. they think that they're going to have a more hybrid yeah. life. But yeah. perhaps ultimately, most companies are going to move to the try and get back to as close to what it was before the pandemic. Right. And I think that, you know, is the one place where there is a counter is if there's a strong, continuing strong labor market and you're an employer who is willing to allow people to uh, work remotely, you will have a competitive advantage in hiring, at least with some chunk of the labor force. And if that becomes a big enough deal, employers will probably accommodate that because even if you're in the C-suite, it's hard to miss that, right? And especially if the idea is, you know, for the same wage, we can attract better people or we can keep them more easily without having to raise their pay. That's a compelling argument for the, you know, for the CFOs. However, simply because you go to work for a company that allows you to work remotely doesn't mean it will stay that way, right? I don't think many employers are putting any of this in writing. Um, but I think one of the concerns for employees on the employers is if you're creating this, a lot of short-term solutions. So in the last year, there've been a lot of hiring of managerial and executive level people where they each were allowed to cut special deals to keep staying, keep remote. And a lot of them remote on a reasonably permanent basis, right? Like I don't want to move my family and the company said, fine, you don't have to move your family. We're working remotely anyway. So then you have a bunch of new hires who can work remotely on a permanent basis. What are you going to do for everybody else? Right. I mean, the equity pressures internally become quite compelling, especially if my boss can work remotely, but I can't. Why is that? Right. And you've seen probably the story with the, the Facebook new incarnation meta, where it turned out Wall Street Journal story, you know, that a big chunk of those folks were living in Hawaii and other places. Right. Uh, OK, that's fine. If you if you want to be a virtual company and everybody's going to be working remotely, that's fine. But if you want your employees to be in their office and the executives are in Maui, it's going to be a hard thing to swallow, right? Yeah, a couple of things sort of related to that. Maybe one around the, you know, is there a you know, rise in employee activism? And then the second thing, back to one, something you said at, right from the mm-hmm. start, Peter, around planning, you know, and our company's getting better at that now. So are you seeing, you know, in some of the research you're doing, are you seeing a rise in employee activism or is it, is it, you know, I mean, we're seeing it in some of the tech companies, for example, but is that having a difference? Is it something that companies should be thinking about more moving forward? Well, there's, so there's two parts of that. One is the union part. And this is surprising to lots of people, but the American public has had favorable attitudes toward unions forever. The majority of population has always supported the idea of trade unions. And it's up at a higher level now than in the last 20 years or so. On the other hand, though, the context so favors employers in unionization, there's just a million ways to beat the unions. And, you know, even if unions get a contract, and you're seeing these stories now at one Amazon warehouse anyway, and a bunch of small Starbucks and those places, simply getting winning the election does not mean that you get anywhere. The employer doesn't have to negotiate with you. Right. So you could have a union, you're paying dues. We're not talking to you as the employer. Eventually, everybody gets tired. They go away. Right. So 
the institutions are not strong enough to require unionization if the employees want it, right? And if the employers are willing to kick up a fuss as they are, then it's not going to happen, right? So uh, unless there is enough public objection that um, they feel that they can't do it. You know, I think uh, if you think about some companies, for example, I, I think Walmart has gotten much better at the way it manages and treats its employees. And I think there's no doubt that was directly because they got tired of being uh, pilloried all the time as being the worst employer. Uh, they were never the worst employer, but they were the biggest employer. So you get, you know, you get a lot of attention on that regard. So, you know, that takes us to what does the public think about employers? And I think what has changed more broadly on activism in the white collar workforce is that um, employees who have bargaining power individually, like the tech employees, where they can easily quit and go someplace else. If they object to what the company is doing, uh, the company is much more likely to respond. If it's hourly employees, frankly, they would fire them, you know, which they're allowed to do in the U.S. under most circumstances, right? Um, if particularly if you believe they're disparaging the employer, um, even under common law, you can, you know, that's something you're not supposed to do. It violates some of the duties, right? So I, I think what we are seeing in, in some places is also a geographic issue because the U.S. is polarized on a pretty clearly geographic dimension. A bit of it's urban-rural, big part of it is urban-rural, but a big part of it is still uh, red state, blue state, mainly the south versus the coasts, right? And if you are one of those employers headquartered in a blue state, the views of your employees, at least the ones that you're seeing the most, are quite likely radically different than the ones in the red states. So if you got a small office in the red states, uh, you look at Disney, for example, right? And Disney's a corporation that is very talent intensive, highly skilled people in idiosyncratic jobs and roles, operating at least one big operation in a red state, reddish state, Florida. And so what do you do if your employees really object to what's going on in that red state? And, you know, these are people who, <clears throat> who could disengage and you would never kind of know it. And uh, not enough that you could just go around and fire the people who were not working as hard, you know, because they were irritated at you or quitting. Your quit rate goes up because of this. Right? What, what would you do? I mean, they... They do have a problem, and I do feel for employers on this because they would like to stay out of these fights. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, there's no easy win on these things because your workforce is rarely uniform in its views on political issues. But when you've got a lot of employers, employees who are important to you, who have very strong views on issues which frankly are quite divisive, you know, there's not a lot of middle ground on these things that the employees are objecting to, right? Um, what do you do uh, on this? So the employers are trying to dance around it. They are pressed by shareholders in the investment community to ignore the employees and go where the money is. And on the other hand, uh, if you start to see enough of these people leave or screaming at you in your office meetings and things, it's hard not to you know, take that seriously.
Yeah, I guess particularly when it gets in the press as well, and it has a negative impact on the reputation of the company, certainly in the short to medium term. Is that possible? Yes, right. That costs money. Yeah, it damages your brand, right? Yeah. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with Peter as he shares his view on why companies aren't advanced enough in their approach to workforce planning. And then on the planning side, so certainly a lot of the companies that we're working with, so we principally are working with heads of people and as you see large global companies half headquartered in Europe, half headquartered in the US. We've seen a real shift in the sort of last couple of years to, to the way they do workforce planning. So A, people analytics teams are increasingly having responsibility for it. So there's, there's perhaps a more data-centric view of actually doing this work. And the secondly is that they're, 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 they're breaking it down to skills. So understanding, first of all, understanding skills within the organization and then under, you know mapping that obviously with skills that they need now and in the future. Uh, and taking that more planning, comprehensive planning approach to that. Is that something that you're seeing? And, you know, if so, you know, what companies are you seeing out there that are doing this well? Well, so uh, this was this book I wrote called Talent on Demand, you know, which was, okay, what do you do when you can't plan? And I'm afraid that what a lot of companies are doing is just assuming they can plan, even when they can't. So I always ask them, you know, um, how far out do your business plans go? And I've started to hear people say longer numbers now. I mean, a year or two ago, before the pandemic, it was sort of a year plan. And now they're talking about two-year plans or three-year plans. But then I say, okay, how often do you update your plan? And they say every year. Okay, so you got a one-year plan then, right? Because you can change your plan every year, so you got a one-year plan. Okay, yeah, you got a one-year plan. Okay, so what does it mean to plan when you've got a one-year plan? Uh, and I think what happens is you go through this planning exercise, like succession planning, right? Which lots of organizations still do, but as far as I can tell, they rarely ever use them. You know, because the new CEO comes in and they want their entire new team. Sorry, guys, they want to be able to pick. You got this plan that says there are the people who should be in these roles, but then you ignore the plan and you've gone through this big expensive exercise which just irritates people because they don't get the jobs they thought they were expecting and so they quit right uh, and you know the company changes direction they honestly don't know what the skills they need are going to be because they don't know what the business they're in is going to be more than a year or so out so what's the problem we're solving with this planning exercise you know uh, and I think that's where we are as far as I can tell is there's more interest in planning it's not clear it's doing any good. It's something they feel they ought to do, like succession planning. They feel it's something they ought to do. And to some extent, this again is a problem from the top down, is that they don't understand the difference between, say, replacement planning, which just means what happens if the boss gets hit by a bus tomorrow? Uh, who signs the checks? That's pretty easy to do that, you know, that kind of planning. 
promotion from within, which we ought to be doing more of, and we're still not doing much of that, right? And internal development, which just means let's prepare people for bigger roles, right? And you can't seriously do succession planning if you're not going to do promotion from within. I mean, what are we thinking? And you can't do promotion from within if you're not developing people for bigger roles. So we're not doing that. And yet at the end, we're going to talk about succession planning. I mean, this is, you know, this is a waste of time. So who, why are we doing it? I, I think we're doing it because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're doing something important. People at the top say, oh, yeah, succession planning, you, want, you should do that. If you were to ask them, what does it mean to do that? I'm sure what they think that means is to prepare people for internal advancement. But that is not what succession planning means, right? If you're not developing people internally, succession planning is just a, you know, is just a diagram, right? So I don't see we're getting any better at this. I think the good thing about data analytics, um, data science basically in human resources, is that it is at the very least forcing people to collect data. So before the pandemic, we were gathering people who were doing uh, data science in human resources at different companies to talk about what they were doing. And, you know, it's stunning how little they're able to do. And the reason for that is their biggest problem is database management. That is, they can't get the data into a context where they can actually examine it. That's their biggest problem, right? So is it building analytical models with machine learning to do predictions as to who will who should be promoted? Well, to do that, First thing, you need an enormous amount of data. Almost no companies have that much data to do it. You would have to be able to merge the data on performance success with the data on personal attributes, with the data on hiring, all that stuff. They're all in different data sets, in different silos. They don't talk to each other, right? So what ends up happening is vendors sweep in and they've already built a solution for you, right? Well, that sounds great, except that unless this solution is built with your data, there's no reason to think it's going to predict anything about your company, right? So, so what is happening is we've created the buzz that this is important stuff to do. Inside the companies, they can't do it, partly because they don't have data, partly because when they have the data, it's so intensive to build these models and expensive. And nobody wants to pay for it or give the authority to make these different silos share data or to require that the vendors you're using be compatible so you could do it. So as a result, we go to a vendor, the vendor gives us something, we use it, we have no idea whether it works or not, we claim success. You know, I mean, that's another example of what I was describing earlier. Yeah, and, and how can HR change? Let's say they've, got, they've built this muscle within, within the function, they've got the, the right data people around. Um, you know, they're, actually orienting the work of, of, the, of that team onto the big business priorities. So, for example, what are the people factors that drive higher sales, for example? Business leaders are going to care about that. Is, yeah. that, is that a way that, that HR can kind of change the game a little bit um, in using data? Well, I think in general, what I hope HR can do is have a point of view on all these questions. You know, like, for example, uh, I have a colleague who's done some very careful, very, very careful studies of sales and particularly looking at the leadership of sales teams. And what they find is um, that uh, promoting the best individual contributors to leadership positions has a negative effect on, on sales performance, right? 
but yet that's what we do most of the time. So, you know, somebody in HR who could say, you know, it's not obvious that promoting the best individual contributors is going to work here. There's some reasons for thinking it's not. You know, this is kind of like the Google story with their Project Oxygen a long time ago, which if you were outside, you would say they documented things that everybody already knew, right? Uh, if you were inside, you would say that was necessary because the leadership team did not believe that the lessons from other places applied to them because they were special, right? So what you could do in HR is to say, let us examine this and, and see. And, you know, the big ahas are not going to come from new machine learning models. I mean, they're just not. People have been studying these same questions for 100 years, and the idea that you're going to find some enormous breakthrough is, is unlikely to ever happen, and it's going to cost you a ton of money to find that out. However, you can learn a real lot from simple descriptive data, which simply shows on sales, for example, who are the people who are selling the most, right? Which supervisors seem to have the people who are doing the best job? It's these guys. Let's go talk to them and see what's going on, right? So the best thing that we can do with data analytics here is simply point management in the right directions, you know? <clears throat> it, it doesn't mean coming up with elasticities that say this much investment here will lead to this much over here. It's this team here is way outperforming. Why is that, right? Let's go look and, and figure it out and come back with a report, right? The, you know, thinking that, that some machine learning model will solve all this is goes back to this optimization thinking, you know, that you can just apply the same tools that we use to determine whether a, a railroad car wheel will break to figuring out who's going to be the best performer. It sounds like we should be able to, but it is so complicated to do this in a human dimension. It's just, and, and frankly, as an employer, you don't have the time or the resources to want to do it. So what could we get a big bang out of? And there's lots of things you could get a big bang out of with simple descriptive data. I've seen it work in, in, in many organizations with that, yeah, exactly. So, so this is the question we're asking everyone on this series, Peter. Um, you know, and it might be that you have summarized some of the stuff that, that we've already talked about. What do you believe to be the, the two to three things that the HR will need to do to really add business value as we hopefully come out of the pandemic. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it just it does recap a little bit. I, I think the first is they had a, a point of view on these things. And a point of view means things like um, the vice president over here says people should not work from home because they're just watching TV when they're home. Um, do you have a point of view on that? A point of view means, uh, well, that's an interesting hypothesis. Here's what we know about it. You know, here's what evidence shows about this. And I'm not suggesting you go argue with your CEO, you know, you want to be managing up carefully, which means you're phrasing everything in terms of what is good for the company, you know, uh, and it's not your person. None of this is your personal opinion and you're not trying to contradict them. You're just saying, well, you know, here's, here's what we know. And we could go look at this inside. If you want, I can come back in a month and give you a full report on what we know about this. So that's the first thing is to be able to have a point of view on these issues, right? Uh, and the second is, you know, to understand the way they, uh, the way they think, you know, they are for sure thinking about how do these actions pay off in terms of money. And it's not that hard to come up with estimates of that. 
using your best guesses. So I wouldn't be a coward about this and say, you know, that's the first inclination is when people begin to learn enough about finance and how to make these causal arguments is they realize how complicated it is to do it well, which is absolutely true. Um, But if you don't do it at all, then that's worse, right? Perfect shouldn't be the enemy of good. So being able to say, if you want, you know, here are all the caveats to this. By the way, they're the same caveats that our marketing colleagues have and that our operations colleagues have and our strategy colleagues have too. You know, here, but here's what we know. Here's the best evidence on that, right? So being able to provide them with evidence and descriptive evidence is kind of good enough in most of these things. Can you attach a dollar number to these things? Sure you can, right? The first one you want to be able to do, and it's astonishing that we don't do this in many companies, and I've had some occasions where I've asked CEOs if they knew the number <clears throat> and they don't. What's the cost of turnover? Because if you think it's low, a lot of the reasons for managing people carefully go out the window. But we know it's it's not low, right? And the only reason it's low is because we don't measure it very carefully. We just look at the costs of filling a position. Um, and we don't look at that very carefully. It's just the administrative costs, right? Uh, but, you know, you can go look at the research on this and see some careful estimates of what it costs. It's hugely expensive. But if you don't know that number in your own organization and your executives don't know it, you are already in a lot of trouble because almost nothing that you do is going to matter if the people at the top think it doesn't cost very much if somebody quits. Let's just churn through people. then. We'll find the good ones. You know, a lot of them still believe the Jack Welsh A player, B player, C player story, for which there was no evidence. Even in GE, never had evidence for that. It was just something that he believed. And yet everybody saluted around that thing, even though it was wrong, right? Um, and, you know, you have to have responses to this without getting into a fight. Just be able to say, well, here's what the evidence shows on this. You know, here it is, right? Really good place to leave it, I think. You know, it's, it's, as you said, you know, there's enough academic research out there publicly available material and, and you just need to take that and see what it how it applies in your own company and as you said in the example of, of google beta the project option and actually show them with their own data that it also applies within within our organization to a greater or lesser degree depending on, on what you find so thanks so much for being a guest on the digital hr leaders uh, podcast peter can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you follow you on social media find out more about your work I'm lousy at social media. I guess I never, <laughs> I never wanted to have to do the work. I guess in it, um, but there's I'm the only Capelli with two P's and two L's, and uh, stuff tends to appear on my Warden website um, when I publish it and things. But it's pretty easy to find it if you just put in my name, uh, which is a a good thing, I guess. <laughs> I have a slightly yeah. distinctive name, right? <laughs> yeah, Peter Capelli Warden, and you'll probably find most of the stuff that you've been publishing. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Peter, thanks very much for for being a guest on the show and uh, take care and I hope to see you soon. Good. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. We'll be back next week for episode five of series 22. Well, I'll be joined by RJ Milner, head of people analytics at Uber. 
Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.